0: Starting in verse 13, interesting in verse 13, John left them to return to Jerusalem. If you look at a, uh, some of your Bibles will have a, a, sub, uh, a marking that shows it's John Mark, it's Mark that leaves Paul. So you read it, and it's confusing, you think it's John, it's not, it's Mark. John Mark, <laughs> as if you need to be confused, these guys have double names sometimes. So um, Mark, also known as John Mark. Uh, Mark departs, just leaves Paul uh, abruptly. And Paul did not accept this, apparently. Because if you flip forward, or I'm going to give you a lot of references today. So if you have a pen and paper handy, you might want to get ready. Because I'll repeat them once or twice, but then I'll keep going. Um, In Acts 15, 36 through 39, Paul um, talks about John Mark and his desertion of Acts 13. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are together and uh, are deciding to what to do and should they separate, who should they take with them, and, oh, there it goes. I'm a fairly tech-savvy person, but (laughs) I don't know how to get him out of here. There we go. All right, we'll see how long this lasts. If not, I'll channel channel my inner George Whitfield and be extremely loud. So in Acts 15, Paul says to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word and see how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly, saying John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark. With him and sailed for Cyprus. So, if you think disagreements among believers is a new invention, you are incorrect. So they have it. Paul and Mark don't see eye to eye. So, why did Mark leave? And in Act and thirteen, chapter thirteen, verse thirty, verse thirteen. Sorry, why did Mark leave? Doesn't well, the text doesn't tell us? But some um, some writers believe that. Um, Mark's leaving was for reasons even more than personal. Perhaps Mark resented Paul assuming leadership over Mark's cousin, Barnabas. Mark and Barnabas were related. And Paul, being Paul, is saying, I'm leading the charge, right? I mean, it's Paul. So he's very bold all the time. But clearly Mark disagreed with Paul over something very important. So it could have been over family matters. Um, And some even surmise maybe Mark had an issue with Paul's message to the Gentiles of being uh, so welcoming of Gentile believers. So while John Mark did did desert Paul in Acts 13, it does not hamper their mission, though. Because if we read further in Paul's writings, uh, for example, in Colossians 4, verse 10, um, Paul's writing from prison And he says, um, Aristarchus, who's in prison with me, sends you his greetings. So does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. So Mark is there with Paul in prison. uh, and from He's writing the book of Colossians. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, Only Luke is with me, but bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. So we see that they get reconciled somehow uh, later on. But in Acts 13, Acts 15, no, they were not getting along. Um, So moving on, uh, in Acts 13, you see Paul doing what he always does when he visits a new city or area. He always goes to the synagogue first. So this is very much in the pattern of Jesus, right? He always went to the synagogue first. If there was a large community of Jewish people, he would always go to the synagogue first and give an initial proclamation to the Jews there and any Gentiles present. And if he's refused an audience in the synagogue, which happens as well, he would go directly to the Gentiles in those cities. For example, Athens, right? Mars Hill. We're familiar with that account. So if he can't get to the Jews first, he always will go directly to the streets. Um, now, Paul famously wrote in Romans 2 and, Romans 2 and 3, Paul famously writes that, that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? That we're all in the same boat. We're all condemned under the law, right? We're all incapable of saving ourselves. Uh, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Um, So we're all equal in this regard. And considering his stance of equality, we're all equally sinners. He did not stick to the synagogue exclusively or the steps of Mars Hill exclusively, right? He's going to both because this is coming out of his theology, of his way of thinking and seeing the world. They're all sinners. Everybody needs Jesus. So I'm going to go to everybody I can. So the following sermon you see in Acts 13 is the first of his three missionary sermons in the book of Acts. There's this one in Acts 13. There's another one in the next chapter of Acts 14. And the last one will be Acts chapter 17 in Athens, which is directly directed to the Gentiles. So each sermon of Paul, like you read here in Acts 13... It's really pro- probably a cliff note version because, like, what I just read to you took not even three minutes, right, to deliver. So we feel pretty, pretty good that Paul actually talked for a longer time uh, at all of these events. The, his next one in Acts 14, you can read in about 30 seconds. So if you know anything about preachers, you know that they don't talk for only 30 seconds. They they pause for thirty seconds, <laughs> dramatic pauses. So, so this is this overview Paul gives, which we're going to get into. Uh, in verse fifteen, it says, "After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to Paul, a well-known Pharisee. Um, hey, brothers, if you have a word." For the people, please stand up. So they're in they're in what's probably the third part of the liturgy of the synagogue, after the uh, after the recitation of the Shema and further prayers. Then, as it says here, they would read from the Law and the prophets or reading from the Law and from the Prophets. But before the teaching of the Law and the Prophets, they would invite anyone to get up in in the, in the community there and And give a word, so that 's what they 're doing here with Paul. now usually, it would be based on what you just heard from the law and the prophets, but paul doesn 't do that. Um, what follows in verses seventeen to twenty two is really a resume of israel 's history, and it it emphasizes the pattern of god 's redemptive activity from Abraham to David. You see the same approach. Um, Really, in a lot of the New Testament, earlier in Acts, the stoning of Stephen, right? Stephen does a very similar thing that Paul does here. He starts to lay out the whole redemptive history that all of them knew. And saying how, look, there's a succession that God has been doing and it's led to this man, to Jesus. He is the one you've been waiting for. Now, what happened to Stephen? Obviously, he was killed. They, They didn't want to hear it. But that's, this is the same pattern. Um, if you read the, the, the letter of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, in great detail, uh, does a similar thing, where it just walks through the whole redemptive history of the scriptures, pointing to Jesus as the high priest that they've been waiting for. And really, even the underlying structure of Matthew's gospel, which Matthew's, Matthew is known as the Jewish gospel, it's more focused on Ju- Judaism uh, than others, and Matthew also leads his reader through that redemptive history that points to Jesus. So that's what Paul's doing in verses 17 and 22. Now in verse 20, it has this curious thing. it says, where Paul says about 400, and all this took about 450 years. So yeah, 400 years of captivity in Egypt, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness in about 10 years from the crossing of the Jordan River to the eventual division of the land they would inherit in, inherit in Joshua chapter 14. So after that, Samuel, so he talks about the last judge, he's, Paul's kind of laying out, look, God's been so patient with us. He has tried all of these different things with his people and they've, you, you have basically rejected all of them. And here he, the Messiah has come and you still don't see him, right? We, we, we've we given you a monarchy, so he said you wanted, we gave you judges, and none of it really worked, did it? So Samuel was the last judge who anointed Israel's first king of Saul. Obviously Saul didn't work out very well. And then Paul makes reference to David, who we see here, um, he refers to as a, a man after my own heart, which is a reference to 1 Samuel 13. Um, this is a phrase, obviously, we've heard a lot attributed to David. And it's a title some of us could question because David was such a sinner. <laughs> he, was such a, he was a sinner. Um, and it's an encouragement, actually, for all of us, though, that you can have a heart for God and still make mistakes. You can have a heart for God and still be a sinner. And that's you and me. No person who's after God's heart is perfect. Um, and But like David, we can recognize our sin, repent of it, um, as David did. Then verse 23, Paul uses this phrase, according to the promise for um, he has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, just as He God promised. Jesus is in the lineage of David. There's a couple of prophecies in the Old Testament that say this. And here they come. Second Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16. Psalm 132:11 is a prophecy that points to the Messiah, I didn't say Jesus, but the Messiah being in the lineage of David or the root of Jesse. That's Psalm 132, 11. And then most especially Isaiah 11, particularly Isaiah 11, verse 10. But much of Isaiah 11 was a messianic. It is a messianic passage um, of special importance to Judaism because it literally says the Messiah would be a descent. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Uh, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And another o- Old Testament prophecy that's maybe the most famous is uh, Isaiah 53, which um, in great detail uh, lays out about by and wounds, we are healed, et cetera, et cetera, right? We hear this a lot on Good Friday. Um, that's probably the most overt. Psalm 22 clearly is about crucifixion. Um, and it's there are references to crucifixion in Psalm 22. But take note that Psalm 22 was written at a time where crucifixion was not largely carried out on people at all. Uh, it was hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion was carried out by the Romans. So isn't that amazing that David would write these words that would point to an eventual method of death that the Romans would use? Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of all uh, Old Testament prophecies. There's way more than the four or five I've mentioned to you here. Um, he, Jesus f- fulfilled all of them. We can, we can count at least 156 that Jesus fulfilled. Now the odds of one person fulfilling 156 prophecies of the Old Testament is a really high number. Can anyone guess what it might be? <laughs> it is 10 to the 156th power. To give you some reference, that's more than the stars in the universe, in the known universe. It's more than the grains of sand on the planet Earth. That's an incredibly high number, and Jesus fulfilled all of them. So Paul's going through this dialogue to a largely Jewish audience, somewhat a few God-fearing Gentiles in the room. He's laying out the redemptive history of the nation of Israel. And he's pointing them to this Messiah. So then he gets to John in verse 24. Um, which all of them would have been familiar with. And, and in some ways he could be saying, look, John wasn't the Messiah. Some of you thought he was. Some of you thought he was, he was John. He was the apostle. He was Ezekiel. Um, Come back or, you know, a new Isaiah or something. And even John said, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah, right? And Paul makes reference to that where John said, I'm not worthy to, to untie his sandals. So Paul is saying, he's refuting that. He's saying, John, John's not the Messiah. Some of you might still believe that. He's not. So Paul comes in verse 26. He's really coming to the heart of his message. And you can tell by the way the the language shifts here in the Greek. He begins to appeal in more respectful terms, um, using words like brothers, which if you know the city of Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, Adelphos, he's using this familiar uh, type of term for relationship. So there's an appeal there from Paul to these men. He's saying, men, brothers, Adelphoi, children of Abraham, God-fearing Gentiles, it is for us this message of salvation has been sent. This is the hammer. He's coming home with this message. He's saying, for our people and all people, he has done this. So it's becoming a bit more urgent in Paul's language. Then Paul presents a four-point Christian confession in these next couple of verses where he begins with um, the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, first he goes through the trial. They found no proper ground for a death sentence, so they asked Pilate to have him executed when they carried out all that was written about him. They took him down from the cross and laid him to the tomb. Why why does NIV do that? I don't like that. All that was written about him. Other translations say he was crucified. Okay. Well, Paul, he launches into a four-point Christian confession of sorts where he lays out four things. One, Jesus was crucified. Two, they laid him in a tomb. He's saying he was dead. He was fully dead. He's in a tomb. He was crucified, he died. Third, God raised him from the dead. Fourth, there were a lot of witnesses. And there are parallels between this and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. Paul does the exact same thing. He goes to those four points. He was crucified, he died, God raised him from the dead, and a lot of people saw it. In 1 Corinthians 15, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. So in verse 31, he says there were a lot of witnesses to Christ's resurrection um, over a period of many days. He was seen. Now, those people, they are now his witnesses to our people. And in 1 Corinthians 15, like I said, Paul. That's how, in many ways, you can tell who wrote um, New Testament epistles. If the author doesn't, if Paul didn't say, usually he'll say, I, Paul, greet you, right, in the beginning. But that's how we know Paul didn't write things like Hebrews or whatever, because it doesn't follow his patterns. Paul has this pattern where he always lays out this Christian confession, the the, the crucifixion, death, burial, et cetera. Um, So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out, Jesus was seen by Peter, then by the 12. Then he was seen by more than 500 at one time. Then he was seen by Jesus' half-brother, James. Then later, by all the apostles. Then last of all, I, Paul, even though I was born at the wrong time, Paul, Paul always likes a good pity party sometimes. I was born at the wrong time, I missed the party. (laughs) <laughs> no, Paul, you're, you're doing just fine. Um, I also saw him, Paul said. So here is Paul exhorting these leaders in the synagogue, basically saying hundreds and hundreds of us witnessed this. This is firsthand accounts. Eyewitness testimony is admissible in a court of law, right? And here we have repeated statements of eyewitness testimony from hundreds of people. Please, please, my brothers, I'm exhorting you, believe what I'm telling you. If, if you don't believe it from them, believe it from me. And then to support this four-point confessional and to demonstrate the fulfillment and scriptural totality of what God has accomplished, in verses 32 to 37, Paul then starts quoting Old Testament. Scripture, he starts quoting old. Uh, well, to us it's the Old Testament. To them, it just be the Bible or the Scriptures. Um, he starts quoting scriptures that have messianic meaning that would have had definitely a messianic meaning to his listeners. So, in verse thirty-three, Paul quotes Psalm two, verse seven. You are my son. Today, I've become your father. Then, verse thirty-four. Paul quotes Isaiah 55, verse 3. Um, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And you see this juxtaposition of two passages Paul's quoting. Both have sonship, S O N, sonship ideas. Um, he's joining Old Testament redemptive history of the past, and linking it to the Son of God now. So I will give you a today, you are my son, today I have become your father. He's equating, these passages are about Jesus, y'all. He didn't say y'all, you is not a Hebrew word. <laughs> but he's saying just as, that's what God's talking about back then. And it is being fulfilled before your very eyes. Then in verse 35, he quotes psalm 16 verse 10 about and he goes about decay you will not let your holy one see decay and he goes into death and yes david was great abraham great but they died their bodies decayed in the ground jesus didn't die his body never decayed and he's alive so therefore i want you to know that through jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, this is a bold proclamation. He's saying that you can have forgiveness of sins not by what you've come to know your whole life, through the law, through the fulfillment of uh, ritual purity, ceremonial purity. It's through Jesus you can have forgiveness of sins. And this is very bold of Paul. I mean, and he's standing Luke writes, he's standing, he's not sitting while he speaks. A lot of times Jewish leaders would sit when they would address. Paul stands up in this assembly and starts to say these things. So there's a lot of boldness here, right? He's, he's risking his life every time yeah, he speaks like this. And clearly he almost gets killed many, many, many times. Um, but he proclaims the crux of the message, which is that you're going have forgiveness of sins. We're proclaiming that to you. And this is the church's maybe most important proclamation, right? That we can proclaim to the world your sins can be forgiven. No other group can do that, right? I can't forgive you anybody's sin. Jeff Patterson can't do it. Jesus is the only one who forgives sin, right? Yes? Yes. Yeah, I know you know that. Um, but that is our distinct message that we have to the world. So when I speak with people over the years and people say to them, you know, you, you just need, need to forgive yourself. I hear what you're saying, which is you need to move on. You need to have some sense of restitution or peace with your past. I get that. that. That can be a good thing to go. You know what? Don't be so hard on yourself. But when we're talking about forgiving your own sin, you can't do that. Only Jesus forgives sin. Only him. So when you have made sin against someone else, Ultimately, you have to go before him and say, Lord, forgive me, right? I confess my sin to you. And he'll forgive you. As far as the east is from the west, God's word says, I will separate your sin from you. I will not forget. I will not remember it anymore. Like it's over. But only Jesus can forgive sin. Um, So he says this. And then he says, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Here's a big sentence Paul says. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This would have made some eyebrows be raised, perhaps, in the room. Some blood pressure might have gone up hearing that. Did did he just throw Moses under the bus? Did he just say Moses couldn't do what we thought he could do? The law is perfect and good. What are you saying, Paul? Paul? Here it's clear that Paul is the man who wrote the book of Romans. Romans is the single greatest piece of inspired scripture that lays out the insufficiency of the law to atone for our own sin and to make us righteous. Now, Paul in the book of Romans would say the law is still good. It's still pure, as he would say. It is still good in that it points to our inability to fulfill it. He's saying the law is still good in that there's, it creates a standard for us that we just we 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 have never gotten it right because we're sinners. We miss the mark, right? The Greek word for sin, hamartia, is to miss the mark. We're constantly pulling that bow back and trying to hit the, the bullseye, and we always just we always miss it. So he's saying the law is still good. But we, we we cannot make ourselves righteous. We can't make ourselves holy. We cannot forgive our own sin. We need an, out, we need an outside mediator. We need help. We need a savior to come from somewhere else to do for what for us we can't do for ourselves. Keeping the law of Moses did not free anyone from their sins. Paul would refer about this constantly in his writings throughout the New Testament. Romans 3.28. A lot of Romans. It's I could re- I'll read Romans the rest of my life, and I will find something new that blows my mind. It is so inspired by the Holy Spirit, the book of Romans. Romans 3.28, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Galatians 2.16, Philippians 3.19, and there's a lot more. It was a constant theme for Paul. He's pointing to the law of Moses and saying to his audience, it is not going to do what you need it to do. Only the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus satisfies the demands of the law, making the forgiveness of sins available to all who believe. You see that in Galatians 3.16, Colossians chapter 2, and then Romans 3. Only the forgiveness of Christ offers can free people from their sins. And then Paul ends this... um, he ends this sermon, if you want to call it that. I would call it a sermon. Or in verse 41, he quotes he quotes Habakkuk one five. In verse 41, which I guess I didn't read yet. In verse 40, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. He, then he quotes Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So there's no crowd-pleasing jokes with Paul, right? He's not up there giving cute illustrations and uh, tickling the ear. He's saying to these men who knew Habakkuk, who, a, a prophet who lived during a time of occupation of the Assyrians, that would eventually lead to King Nebuchadnezzar doing what he did. Habakkuk, who, a time period in which the people of Israel were enslaved. So, if he's quoting this verse, it would bring to mind imagery of invading armies that God allowed to happen, that God allowed them to come and take the nation of Israel to show that God will do amazing work right under your noses. So pay attention and be careful. Don't let these words apply to you. He concludes this by warning this assembly that this condemnation of Habakkuk uh, applies to all who reject God working in Jesus' ministry and who refuse Jesus as the divinely appointed Messiah. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your day that you would never believe, even if someone told you. This is very much an evangelical message from Paul. And he's saying, I am telling you now the truth. And some of you are still not going to believe me, even though that God can do things in your midst that you just don't recognize. Don't be like that. Listen to me. Let, it, let what I'm telling you be like a key that unlocks the door to seeing something very exciting and life-giving and wonderful. But you've got to take the blinders off because God can do things in your midst and you have no clue because you're so set, right? You're so narrow-minded in that sense in your ways that you won't let go and hear what, what God is up to. You, you, and some of you won't believe it, even if I'm telling it to your, to your face. That just sounds to me that even when Jesus did ministry for so long on the earth, so many people still didn't believe him. You, you and I, if we followed Jesus back then, we all would tend to believe that we would believe him. I don't know. Some of us might not. Did he just tell us to eat his flesh? Drink his blood? What? I don't know about that one, Jesus. God can be doing things in our midst that might make us uncomfortable, that might make us, that might seem strange. I'm sure to this audience that Paul is speaking to, they would have, some of them were already writing him off as crazy. He's just another zealot. He's just another uh, uh, someone trying to overthrow the Romans. He's just a rabble rouser, right? Peddling some sort of heresy. But with Paul's pedigree and his education level, he would have gotten an he got an audience because of that, right? He was very high, highly esteemed, very well-known, and very intelligent. And he, he knew his Bible. <laughs> he definitely knew his, his scriptures. And as we see here in this text, he repeatedly is using that as a way to point to the validity of what he and the apostles would eventually give up their lives for. So... But with that, my friends, I'm going to say a prayer for us. Thank you, Lord, for the ways you inspire your servants to speak your truth. And the inspiration it can give to us to be the same sort of believers who are faithful, even if the audience doesn't get it or fully understand it. God, you, 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 call, you equip the called. You don't call the equipped Thank you for the ways that you maybe push us out of our comfort zone, but you do call us to be bold. I I just think about what if Paul had not said these words to this audience? What if Paul had not done done what he did for us, the Gentiles? Uh, Thank you, God, for the faithfulness of those men and women back then who laid down their lives to speak. And I pray that we remember the power of speaking. We, maybe you don't want us to wait for someone else to proclaim your word, but through small unseen ways, God, you call us to speak boldly and to know your word so that we can uh, proclaim it to a world that desperately needs it. So I pray over everyone here that you give them a sense of holy boldness, give them opportunity to share your word with others, this good news of Jesus to the world for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, that all people can have a fresh start. All people, we are not slaves. Lord, as you said in the synagogue when you started your ministry, you have come to proclaim sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and for chains to come unbound. God, you weren't talking about physical enslavement, but spiritual And that we live in a world that's spiritually chained, held captive by our sins. And that is exactly where the enemy would love for people to stay. But Jesus, you forgive us. You set us free. And I pray we walk in that newness of life so that we can be used by you to bless the world. Thank you for these friends gathered here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.